Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events, and emerged triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Today, my friend here knows a lot about being unstoppable, and we are going to go on a special Mission Unstoppable. Our guide is a man who has lost much, but claims he often got the better end of the bargain. On November 17th, 2013, a 33-year-old Alex Lewis collapsed. And during the next three days, little did he know that he would be fighting for his life with a less than 3% chance of survival. Alex thought he had a common cold. What he contracted was a virulent form of Streptococcus A, something that for most of us we can shrug off. But that day, his body fought against toxic shock syndrome, septicemia, and necrotizing fasciitis. In an attempt to save his life, Alex underwent a quadruple amputation and required extensive skin grafts and facial reconstruction as the infection ravaged his face and mouth as well as his limbs. But wait, Alex also gained something too. Wow. Stay tuned and hear what my incredible friend Alex Lewis has to tell you about life. Wow, Alex. You know, I met you um, a few weeks ago, actually, and we had yeah. a wonderful chat. And a lot of people would read your story. Well, we're going to tell you're going to let you tell your own story in your own words. So let, let, let me I'm going to back up, back up, back up. <laughs> we can rewind here live. Um, on Unstoppable, I always take people back to their childhood to kind of figure out how they got to be who they are today. So when Alex rewinds back to a five-year-old Alex, what were you, what did you play with? What did you think he would be when you grew up? <laughs> so a, a five-year-old Alex went to, uh, I was, there was two boys in a girls' school and I was one of those boys. So I grew up with... <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm surrounded by women. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was very sport-orientated, so I loved sport. And I loved art. Anything creative was more more my thing. And then, as I when I turned seven, I was sent to a Catholic boarding school, um, which I loved. I absolutely loved it. I had a great time there. I met some amazing people, um, and sport became even more important to me. And uh, sort of fast forward a few years, and I started to play for. Um, at a county level, and I'd, I'd thought about turning pro as a pro golfer. Um, oh, a golfer! Uh, yeah, I was mad keen on golf and cricket and anything really. Um, but golf was the, the one that I, I I wanted to really have a go at, um, and I loved it. I loved being out there in the fresh air, um, and I met some really really good mates through it. My best friend through playing golf. Um, and then once I started playing golf seriously, I then didn't so much concentrate on studies. Um, the creativity aspects of my life, despite loving design and arts and everything else, that sort of went by the wayside. Um, golf was number one for me. And when I got to about sort of seven, 16, 17, I suppose, then alcohol and women played a big part in my life. And then golf was completely out the window. Um, Gone so is I, the golf. <laughs> gone, not forgotten, but it was certainly gone. Um, and then I decided to go self-employed. I was I left college at eighteen, and I didn't want to go to university. I didn't want to spend my time in an office environment that wasn't for me. Uh, so I very quickly set up my own um, interior decorating company. Oh, when I was twenty, I was twenty, I think when I set up. Um, and that was the beginning of my working life, really. Um, I enjoyed it. It wasn't something that I could see myself doing forever, but the money was good. It was on my terms. Self-employment was very much for me. Um, 
I tried being employed briefly for about six months. Hated it. You don't uh, like people telling you what to do. No, and I, I, I was an incredibly relaxed character prior to falling ill. So I was relaxed on the golf course. I was relaxed in relationships. I was relaxed in work. Um, I never lost my temper. Never lost my, you know, I was, I was always very calm, very chilled out. Um, and then I met Lucy, my other half. And then, um, I don't know, things started to change, I'd say. She pushed me more than anybody done before. Um, wanted me to be sort of happier in my work, happier in life. Um, and she was a, a catalyst, really. But I kind of pushed against it to begin with, to the point that I could see what she was trying to do. And I totally understood it. Because I'd be frustrated with me if I was going out with me. But I was very, very sort of stoic in my approach and I, I didn't want to change. And then our little boy was born. And I was very fortunate that I had the most incredible two and a half years with him prior to falling ill, where I'd be responsible for changing the nappies, I'd be responsible for cooking his tea. And I had this whole new responsibility and all of a sudden I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. About two and a half years of my little boy was by far the best two and a half years of my life up until the minute I fell ill. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, it was gone. We, we felt we'd lost it. Um, and then the rest, as they say, is, is history. Well, not quite. <laughs> not quite. Not quite. <laughs> you, um, first of all, the last time we talked, you said that, that, this might have been like one of the best things that happened to you. Now, yeah, a lot of people wouldn't understand that, Alex. A lot of people wouldn't understand that. They, they would look and go, oh my God, I would kill myself. And that's one thing that we did talk about. We talked about suicide because we were I, I'm doing a book on pain and I would, you know, a lot of people get to a point where they get so frustrated and they just ready to go. But you said the opposite. You wanted to live. Yeah. I was, when I fell ill, and when I, I was rushing and I was placed on life support, when I came round after about seven days, I couldn't, I, I couldn't comprehend quite what, what had gone on. And when people were explaining what happened and, you know, you only had a 3% chance of survival, obviously they were looking at me and say, well, it's like a minor miracle that you're even still here. Um, and that's consultants are looking at me with that thought, let alone my family and my friends and everyone else that knew what was going on. So it was, an, it was a very strange um, time. I was, mm -hmm. you know, sedated, very heavily sedated, on a lot of drugs and pain relief. Um, and then when I was rushed into Salisbury to have the amputations, I, I met so many people. And, I, and I, it was the people that I met and the support that I had all the way through. People call it a journey. It wasn't a journey. It was far from it. Journeys are from A to B. We're nowhere near B yet. Um, but I, I understood the the human aspects of it and the the investment that all these people people have made in me uh, to will me to live, to save my life, to carry out the incredible surgical techniques and everything that went into it. It it kind of inspired. It sort of reinvigorated them. You didn't want to let them down? No, I didn't. No, definitely not. I didn't want to let them down. I didn't want to let myself down. I didn't want to feel that it was going to beat me in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> I, just, I just all of a sudden had a, just a bigger lust for life, courtesy of a twist of fate. Um, yeah, it's, it's the strangest thing. And I, I'd probably say it 100 times a week that the last four years have been the best four years of my life. I've met amazing people. I've seen incredible things. I've seen what healthcare systems can do. I've seen what they can't do. And that's then inspired me to go and see if we can make a change with that. Um, it's made me understand the need for people to give up their time, to invest their time in, whether it's... Um, modern technology, whether it's in enhancing surgical techniques, um, something, things that can't be paid for, but all they're looking for are, are willing participants. Um, yeah, I've seen a whole new side to life that I, would ne I never saw prior to falling ill, certainly. 
What about with Lucy? You see a whole new side of her too? Yeah, we've just been talking about it actually. And I always thought she was the the stronger of the two of us. And I, I still I still believe that. I overheard her just now in an interview and she said, you know, she thought she was strong, but she said nothing, nothing in comparison to me. And when I thought I, I heard that and I thought it's the first time I ever heard her say that. And it, I felt very humbled that she feels that way. But there's no way in the world that I could be where I am without her. And, you know, now clearly it's the same, the same for her. You know, I was thinking before you came on, I was thinking about you all week, actually, you and Lucy. And, and the thought that I had was, you know, sometimes the universe gets it right. Sometimes the two right people meet. Because if it was anybody else, they might not have stuck around. That's very true. Um, very early on in the whole um, process, a good friend of ours, he took Lucy to one side because we'd lost the business going through it all. Lucy and Sam were homeless, basically, and they were living with friends um, about an hour away from the hospital. And he said, Lucy, I've got to take someone, so I've got to ask you. And he said, I think Alex would want me to ask you this. Do you want to stick with him? You know, it, it, he's in a hell of a state. You're looking at years and years of rehab. At that point, I hadn't lost all my limbs. I'd lost three, and let alone the fourth that was to follow. Um, and he, he asked the one question that was on my mind the most. And I didn't realise this until probably a year after I came out of hospital that he, he'd asked that question. And Lucy told me. And the relief that I had that somebody had asked that question and it wasn't something that I had to broach. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, I just simply wasn't strong enough or anything. I was, it was hard enough waking up in the morning and then getting through surgery, getting through rehabilitation, um, going to bed at night, all the drugs, everything else. There was so much I had to concentrate on. Yeah. And obviously the consultants are saying, don't worry about your home life. You know, it's all about what's going on in here at the moment. Um, but I'm, I'm really chuffed that he did ask and I'm even more chuffed that she said, yeah, it's, it's what I want. And she, you know, she said then, you know, I, I love him just as much as I always have done. So I couldn't ask her better lady. Two extraordinary people, really. And I'm really, that's really, would you have been afraid to ask that question yourself? Yeah, I think I think I would have got there in the end. Yeah. But I, it would have taken a long time. And in situations like mine, a lot can go wrong very quickly, certainly in relationships, home life, relationships with children. There's so many things you've got to undertake. And... I was very fortunate that Lucy was not only incredibly strong, but she wasn't prepared to be my carer. So when I came out of hospital, she was straight back to work, and she didn't stop work at all while I was ill. So she carried on running her own business. And then as soon as I came home, we had carers in place at that point. And then she could go back to being even more full-time than she was already. So when she came home from work at night, we could honestly say, how was your day? Yeah, that was really, really wise. It was, uh, you know, and I I didn't want it, and neither did she. Right, yeah. You know, she wasn't to be my carer. Um, And it it was daunting at at the start. I want to go back, I want to go back to one thing that you said, sorry, because you, you, you said that they told you, don't worry about being in love. And, you know, when I was in the hospital going through what I went through, they told me, um, don't date, don't do anything because, you know, your, uh, your commodity as a woman has been depleted by 30%. I mean, basically, that's what they said. And you're just going to get hurt. And I thought they said that because I was a woman. But maybe they didn't just say that because I was a woman. They said, almost, like, to you, like, did they just really think that we're that uh, weak? I don't know if the word's a weak, but. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I mean, when they said it, I wasn't in a position to say, well, hang on a minute, doesn't, that doesn't make much sense. Why, why are you telling me that? Mm-hmm. Um, but in hindsight, what I did learn in all the, in all the months and the, the years and the hundreds of hours of surgery that I went through, they have to be very careful with what advice they give you. So 
they can't build up expectation in any, in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And I think in hindsight, that was clearly don't expect to for everything to go back to normal yeah, anytime soon because your life has changed irreversibly uh, moving forward. Obviously, at that point, they felt that my life had changed for the negative. Um, and I, I think at that point, even I must, must have had an inkling that things weren't going to be quite right. Yeah, um, you're not in Kansas anymore. When, when Sam was afraid to, to kiss you, was it your face or was it your limbs that, that scared him most? It was my face because my limbs were covered in bandages. So um, I didn't see Sam until I think it was about a month after I went in. So I would have lost ooh, probably three limbs at that point. And so the only thing that he saw when, when he came to see me was crisp white bed sheets and this horrific sort of black scarring around my, my lips um, where my, the, uh, the gangrene, the dry gangrene had um, killed off my extremities. And he was very sort of sceptical to come in and he wouldn't kiss me. And it, I totally understood but obviously what I wanted more than anything was that that closeness because obviously having that two and a half year bond of yeah you were the caregiver yeah I mean it was it was heartbreaking to lose it on something that was completely out of our control and there's nothing we could have done to prevent or even stem when Lucy's like that's daddy that's daddy he did he go no or did he he, he didn't say no, but he wouldn't say... Uh, I mean, I was very inclusive with him, I tried to be. And also, so were the, the nurses and the, the clinicians and the consultants. They were very, very good in creating a very uh, normal, as normal as the atmosphere could be in intensive care. Um, and uh, it, took, it took time. I remember when he went home um, just before Christmas, when, he, when Lucy brought him in the first time, it took him home. She took him home. And then I remember one of the consultants coming up to me and saying, that's as hard as it's going to get. What you've gone through there, that's as hard as it's going to get. You know, now it's up to you to make it better. You know, put the effort in. It was a great pep talk in a way because I, I, that was probably my lowest point, seeing the reaction of my son and then seeing him and Lucy walk out the doors an hour later and me you know, sort of scratching my head going, what the hell do I do? You know, where do I start? Um, but what that, what that consultant said was absolutely bang, bang on. What kind of a, a mental game do you have to play with yourself every day? I'd say, I, I wouldn't say I play a mental game day to day. I might once in a blue moon, if I, for instance, the things that aggravate me or if I'm, watching TV on the sofa and I've taken my arms off, I'm off the wheelchair and I can see that the remote control is about six metres away. Yes. It's like, oh, please, come on. <laughs> and it's, it's one thing having legs and arms and being able to get up and get it. But even then that aggravates. But when you've got no arms and no legs, the, the effort involved in having to go over to get that remote, things like that. But it's more of a comical um, psychological game. So your caregiver puts those on for you daily? or Yeah, so I need, uh, for all the liners that I have to wear, I can't put those on um, purely because of the, the shortness of my stunts. Sure. So the liners go on. And then, to be honest, after about eight hours or so of wearing prosthetic limbs, you've pretty much had enough. It's probably um, like a woman wanting to take her bra off at the end of a day, right? <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> want to relax you want to be comfortable yeah you don't want to be you know feeling yeah. um you know it's at the end of the day you just need to relax how, how uh, difficult was it for you to learn to use them um arms took a long time because you know the, the human body's incredible but when it comes to fingers and rotation and wrists and elbows phenomenal absolutely incredible um and there's nothing that can emulate anywhere near that uh, you see these bardic arms, they look great. If you want to look like Iron Man, fantastic. But sadly, the function is not quite there. So it took a long time to work out the angle of the hooks. What what angle would I need to pick up a Can pen? you just hold up your hook? Can we see it? 
Yeah, yeah, so. You don't have to take it off. You just, so, so it's like a reacher. It's like a grabber. It's, uh, it's just that. It's all body powered. So if I push my arm forward, the hook opens up. Right. Um, these are made over in Canada, I think. Oh, uh, well. And we import them over to the UK. Yeah, uh, I'm from the Canada. UK, <laughs> the UK, I think. So everything comes from America and Canada. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's the most practical tool that is easy to use, something that you can wear for long periods of time. You can do anything from cleaning the teeth to making tea to cooking to pretty much everything day to day that you would require. Um, is the muscle in the arm itself or do you still have to like in your shoulder, if you're lifting things, is it, can you lift heavier things because of it or do you have to lift lighter things? You can, this is quite heavy duty, this one. So I can lift heavy things on my right arm. because I've got my elbow joint on my left arm where I'm through elbow. There's very little that I could really do with that. Even in a prosthetic, um, it's so short and it's wielding quite a weight. You have no, your spatial awareness is very, very yeah. different where prosthesis so you know if i'm if i'm uh, in tight confines or if i'm sat around a table with people the last thing i want is my elbow joint doing something that you shouldn't be up to um so i only wear that if i'm using a wheelchair around town or gone shopping um or also what i've found is the the human um, obsession with looking uh, symmetrical so I think all prosthetic clinics are guilty of saying what you need is an arm that replicates the one that you're missing. Well, sometimes we don't need that. Sometimes we just need something that might make us sit up straighter when we're leaning over a desk. Um, there's lots of other things, which is what why I work with prosthetic development to try and create these much cheaper limbs where you know you don't need to sell your car to afford an arm. Right. Yeah. So how many have you had arms? I think I've had eight, seven or eight arms, I think. And each arm is approximately how much? So varies. So lower arm prosthesis started around 10,000, um, going up to about 20. And then upper per? Arm Is that per limb? Per, yeah. Wow. And then left arms go for between 15 and 25 to 30. Is that pounds or dollars, US dollars? Uh, pounds. Wow. So if you're in Canada, double that. Yeah. Yeah. So very, very expensive. Very um, expensive. Uh, it's, it's the nature of the beast, unfortunately, because in the UK, uh, because we have the, the NHS, the National Health Service is fantastic, but it simply can't stretch to very expensive processes like that. Right. Uh, so through the Alexis Trust, we we do all sorts of weird and wonderful things to try and uh, raise raise the money, and uh, I earn as much as I can to top it up. Well, um, let, let's talk about the Alex Lewis Trust and the amount of money that you're trying to raise the the big the big dollar the big yeah, yeah. How much is that? So the big dollar at the moment is about three million. Okay. Three million. That actually doesn't sound like that much money. I mean, it's a lot of money, but in comparison to all that you've done and go through and everything, three million doesn't sound like you know that 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 that's doable. I think that's doable. Yeah. I somebody's, think you're right. Somebody's it company is. can just donate that. Well, yeah, it, they it could. <laughs> but it's not doable to the majority of amputees. No, so there, it's not. That is true. Your triple or quadruple. There's very little you can do, and the likelihood is you're not going to go back to work in your profession that you were before you fell ill. Um, you know, a, a lot of the meningococcal bacteria comes from building sites, comes from physical activity, and and then when that stops, then you've got to look at the psychological aspect and who is going to have the 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 psychological strength to think. Do you know what? I'm going to do something else. I'm going to retrain, or I'm going to learn to do something else. Um, and it's uh, it's trying to package it already, so it takes a long time. It's taken me really three and a half years to get back to being uh, strong enough, fit enough to be able to go to work. Absolutely. To to Did you think it wouldn't? <laughs> well, I think that was my naivety at the start. Yeah, I was convinced that it would take a bit, a bit quicker than that. But um, I think 
although it's although it's taken three and a half years, it's gone incredibly quickly, and we've packed in so much. You have. Yeah. I I got one more question about the limbs, and I'm going to move on. Just I want to talk about all the things that you've done, but the okay, you've had about six or seven sets. And, and are they specific, like they're specific to you? Were they built just for you? Like, I guess my question is, is it possible to donate those to somebody else and have them retrofitted? So as they're starting out? Well, at the moment, no. There's nothing in the UK that do any retrofit. Um, and every everybody's amputation is a different size. Sure, sure. Um, so if you want a, a long-term comfortable fit, it needs to be custom-made. Um, and these days, that's all carbon fiber, so it's all molded to your your arm. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I think there is a way. I think there's some incredibly bright minds out there that I think come up with something that isn't so labor intensive and expensive. Um, it just takes, you know, a lot of sifting through to find the right people to work on the project. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, no retrofitting is not. A, that's unfortunate. A, yeah, in the UK we have a very bizarre health service in the sense that if you were if you were given a prosthetic knee joint and you wore it for six months and something happened that you couldn't wear it again, that knee joint gets destroyed. So rather than actually take it back from a national health service point of view, recondition it, send the knee back to the manufacturer, get an extended warranty, and then put a new socket on, that doesn't happen. So we have an incredible problem with wastage in the UK. And I I see it all the time with prosthesis. Um, And I know that a lot of the prosthesis in the UK, they tend to go to... Sorry, Frank, can you see me? Yeah, uh, you just left. Yeah, I I don't see you right now. I hear you, but I don't see you. You're going to come back, I can tell. Sorry, problems with the battery. There you are. Um, so how tall were you before the accident uh, or before foot. you were six foot and with, with your legs on today, you stand about how tall? I reckon I'm about five foot two, I'd say. Okay. But, and, and is that, is there a reason that they can't make you taller or did you, does it matter to you or? No, the, the reason is that I haven't, I, because I chose to go out and do as much as I feasibly could apart from rehabilitation, I kind of, my life overtook my rehabilitative journey. So I was leaping and bounding, doing all sorts of things, but it meant that my time was taken traveling, getting, trying to, trying to work, public speaking, and I wasn't spending enough time on my rehab. Okay. So I, I should be a lot taller and on good knee joints. But I chose to go out and live life as it stood at that point. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of trying to catch up at the moment. But it, okay. It, takes, it makes sense. So you have become the civilian ambassador for the program Pilgrim Bandits Charity. And that's an amazing charity. Oh my gosh, I can't, I'm going to have to have these guys on the show too. But you, you, because of your attitude and because how unstoppable you are and because you're so positive, these guys um, who work mostly with, with, with servicemen and first responders who, who yeah. have lost limbs, um, they, they, they brought you into their fold. They absolutely adore you. Yeah, they're great. I mean, I was very fortunate that they gave me an opportunity to join because I'm, I'm not military at all. My father's in the military, my grandfather, but not me. Did they reach uh, out to you? We met through a, a, a contact, um, a lady who works in local, local TV, and we arranged to meet. Um, and when we, when we met each other, the, the head of the charity, Mike and I, we got on really well. And it was quite clear that I, there was a, a place for me within it. We just weren't too sure what it would be. And then when, we, when they made me an ambassador, I was actually chuffed at it because it gave me the opportunity to go to Greenland, to go to Iceland, to kayak. Um, well, let's talk about that. You kayaked, to, did, was it 270 kilometers in Greenland? Uh, I think we did 270 in Namibia, I think, and then we did about 200 and something in Greenland. Unbelievable. So, yeah, they were great. I mean, it was a fantastic trip. Look at you. And, and, and so you saw the Northern Lights. Yeah, we did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's astounding. Aren't they amazing? It's stunning. 
it, they dance through the sky you can't to people that haven't seen it firsthand you can't really describe the uh what, what they, they're beautiful absolutely beautiful yeah yes nature's incredible so you did this and then you went skydiving with them yeah yeah i did some skydiving with them which to I raise money and these are all fundraising right so a lot they're, they're fundraising for the the pilgrim bandits so the skydiving the skydiving the um the trips to greenland the trips to namibia um because the the injured servicemen the money is very very low in the fund the funding is pretty poor as far so, as as far as like they get um like some sort of a disability check is that what you mean that kind of yeah, funding yeah so they i think they get a, a one-off payment they're, they're oh jeez. you know these guys have been fit and active for their living and then to tell them that actually, you know, sorry, lads, that's that's it, that you can't go on these trips anymore. I mean, the psychological fallout of that is massive. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I would imagine so. So I think it's great that they there is an outlet that they can explore and they can go and do these trips that they would have been doing in their job, which, you know, from a mentally, I think that's worth its weight in gold far more than the actual physical um, problems with it perhaps. so when you went skydiving did you um the guys that you went with had they are had they been diving before had they jumped out of planes before yeah so they they'd all done it in the military and the only one that hadn't done it was me so were they ribbing you really <laughs> they were great because the only good thing or the only thing in, in my corner is that in the uk we don't have a quadruple amputee ex-servicemen um through afghanistan and iraq one or two so i'm i'm more injured than all the lads. So they, they didn't pick on me because I had less limbs. Okay. Okay. Really. It kind of reminded me of Douglas Bader, you know, when he threw his legs out so he could parachute out of his airplane or something. Well, Douglas Bader, strangely enough, I went to school with his great, great grandson. Did you? Wow. That's very, very random. And I only found out about a year ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah, ironically, there is a link. That's hilarious. Yeah, it was funny. My my pain doctor had said to me, he came back, he was from England and he, and he, he lives here, but he goes every year and, and he came back and he said, you have to read Douglas Bader's story, Frankie. You have to read it. It will inspire you to carry on. <laughs> and it's true. It's amazing. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Wow. So you've got, you've got the Pilgrim Bandits, um, but you're, that's raising money for them. So how are we raising money for you? So we were very fortunate when, I came out, well, I was, when I was in hospital, people realised what had gone on. And because it was so innocuous that it was just a common cold that led to quadruple amputation, people really got behind it and realised that my life wasn't going to be the same again. And, you know, home adaptions, it was all going to have to take place, wheelchairs, you name it. So people that were coming into our restaurant, the Greyhound, they would leave huge chips, 500 quid chips, 1,000 pound chips, and then they'd say, I want to raise money for you. And they'd, they'd do all sorts of different weird and wonderful um, runs, trails, bike rides, um, skydiving. Um, and then through hospitality, we know some relatively famous chefs in the UK. And they would do special dinners. And um, it, it was a snowball effect. And the more we got out there, the more people got behind it. And we were very fortunate that the documentary went out in the UK and that highlighted what had gone on and that led to more fundraising. So we, at the moment, we try not to do too much of it now because we don't want to be hitting the same people for the same thing over and over again. You know, there are so many worthwhile charities. We are one of hundreds of thousands of charities in the UK that need support, constant support. So we're, we're looking at it a different way now from a fundraising perspective that we would rather, I'd rather sing for my supper. I'd rather go and do a talk at a multinational or a big company in London and then put that money into the trust. Because for me to talk for an hour and 20 minutes about what got on, I lived through it. If I can't get the story straight, then that's my <laughs> yeah. it's very It's very easy for me to talk about. And I've never shied away from what went on. So I feel mm-hmm. very comfortable talking about it. But also resilience and positivity, all these things that I never thought I had until I was tested to the metal, really. And luckily I had. I want to say um, Karen Belts, she offered to, she's a tattoo artist. um, 
a medical tattoo artist, and she did your lips. She did a fantastic yeah. job. Yeah, they're, they're great. I mean, I'm they're awesome. They're pretty good. Yeah, I think they're pretty awesome. Good for and that took a year, did it? Yeah, so it's still ongoing. So at the end of my uh, facial surgery, my plastic surgeon said, "Look, well, there's nothing in the budget for actually the the finishing touch, the tattooing." So they recommended going to a, a local tattooist. And I said, look, I'm not being funny, guys, but there's no way in the world that after three and a half years of constant plastic surgery, I'm going to go around the corner and get somebody who's been tattooing Chinese dragons for most of their lives to yeah. do some records and everything else. So we did our research and we found Karen Betts up in London and, you know, she's world-renowned and speaks about it everywhere she goes and she's a phenomenal ambassador to the industry and we met in london with my plastic surgeon um and uh we all got on our hands on fire and we were very lucky that we fell under her uh, foundation that she runs because she tries to help um oh sorry it's okay um acid attack victims um people with um birth deformity anything like that that falls in her foundation and luckily, we, we fitted the criteria, so we were invited to come along, and we've never looked back. Incredible. The, the people that you are meeting, the, um, those, the paraplegics and the quadriplegics that, that you go in and you talk to, how many of them don't get it, don't get what you're selling? Um, I, I think most of them probably don't get it and I have to I have to go all the way back to saying that look I wasn't living a life that I should have been living you know I wasn't doing as much as I should have been doing but then I but then I I backtrack and say that actually I I couldn't live this life without falling ill going through that horrific period and, and going through all these tribulations that that got me to here um yeah, it's it's very hard, and I, it, sadly, we see more people, more more often than not, relationships that break down, or there's problems with financial aspects. Lucy and I are very fortunate that she works constantly and loves it, and you know we've got I've got I have the trust and I have my own business. We have so much going on, and then and sometimes we have time for each other and we meet in the middle, um, but. I think I, I do look at our lot and think that actually, do you know what? I'm, I'm very fortunate, incredibly fortunate. And I can see why they don't get it. But, it I, I, but let, let, I'm going to break it down just for a moment because I think that there's a couple of things that, that make you extremely fortunate. And, and the first is just the way your brain is wired. The way that you think about it is different from the way everybody else would think of it. Everybody else is thinking about the loss and not the gain. And yeah. the, I, I feel, I'm feeling sorry for myself which I'm guilty of and, and even, you know, why me? I don't, I never said why me, but you know, the why me thing. And um, the fact that, that their caregiver was their partner. And I have to look at my, like my best friend who, whose husband had a massive stroke at 40. She's been his caregiver. Um, and, and you think, you know what? Uh, not the best, not the best thing for a relationship. You know, you're not his mom. You're not his nurse. You're not his, is best to keep those things separate and private. Uh, yeah, if you can. If I you think. can. You know, like, I, I think that she was smart to do what she did. Um, because a caregiver is often forgotten. And they play such a vital role. And you're the star. She's the supporting actress. But doesn't really get the same, you know, cachet. And not that I'm saying Lucy doesn't. But oftentimes, that's the role the caregiver is assigned to, right? Absolutely, yeah. And it's very difficult, you know, because at some point they're going to go, hey, <laughs> you know, what about me? I need yeah. my cup filled. No, I t- totally agree. Totally agree. And, you know, I, we've never, ever looked back on that decision. You know, if anything, it's, we, we, we understand it more and more as we go on with it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, every time I do get back into hospital, and I can, you can see that the couples that are, you know, one is a carer and, you know, you look at it and think, you know, there is no time to be husband and wife or, right. or girlfriend. That's gone. You, you know, that 
how do you how do you separate patient to partner or loved one and i i, I personally i can't see how they they could do it okay um, well i read that you didn't want to get married before your accident well yeah that is true i did i did say that constantly for about Why? eight years um I, I made a bet with my mother when I was nine, I think, and it was a hundred pound bet, which in 1989 was a lot of money, well, a lot of money now. And I said, I'm not getting married. And I, I hadn't met, met this is, this is sounds detrimental to my ex-girlfriends, they're all lovely, but I hadn't met anybody that I wanted to sit down with and marry. And then when I met Lucy, she'd been married before. So I think my automatic assumption would be that oh, she doesn't want to get married. And then all of a sudden she started asking me, and what started off as a joke, well, she asked every day for, <laughs> must be seven years, I should think. Oh my gosh, you're a stubborn man. <laughs> doing it, not doing it. And then obviously falling ill and realizing what I could have lost, what I very nearly lost, it, it, it scared the hell out of me. And I think, you know, she's an amazing woman and... I'm never ever going to have anybody like her. You know, she is phenomenal. So, you know, if she isn't worthy of my book in marries, then nobody is. Yeah, I would think. Wow. And so, um, when you talk to these to, to servicemen, or you talk to people who have lost limbs, and they and they're and they don't want to go on, like, what's what's your source of inspiration for them? What do you where do you draw would, draw from? I always say that you. When I fell ill right at the start, it felt like I was I was in free fall, mm-hmm. and I had nobody. Uh, there was no parachute. All I was looking up at was clear blue sky, uh, and obviously the ground beneath me. And actually, if I looked a bit closer, there would be a consultant. There would be Lucy. There would be Sam. There would be, and all of a sudden, you start adding all those people together, and they're your parachute. And I always say that I don't know anybody in the world that has nobody. We've all got somebody. And I think if you start with that one and then you then look outside of that and that creates the parachute mm-hmm. and that stops you falling down the earth. And I've always, the network that we have and the friends and family we have, you know, they're, they're the people that are stopping me from falling to earth. And I also look at it that Sam and Lucy there was a, a great book um, by Frankel and he, he said in when he obviously coming out of the concentration camps in Auschwitz um, and he said that um, if you can uh, I can't remember how, how it went um, you need the who you have to find the, the, the why yeah you need to endure to endure the how I can't remember how it goes now but yeah. basically in Sam were my why and the how is my quadruple amputation. You know, everything that I do um, is partly for me, but mostly for them. Right. Wow. It's it's pretty amazing, you know, to look at your life and, and, and see where it goes. And, and you think, why didn't I have this wake-up call before? But, you know, now you do. And is this your purpose? Do you, do you believe that, you know me how spiritual are you do you believe you signed up for this before you came here and said hey i'm gonna do something really crazy (laughs) not at all all. and and i'm not i'm not spiritual but you do i do have to question um of all the people it bestowed it was me that became the quadruple empathy through it and you know there's nobody else in the uk with it and um you know, why do I, you know, why am I doing it? I can't um, even imagine anybody but you, Alex. You know, I mean, it's, I can't imagine anybody but you being the chill guy, you know, and being chill with this too, really. And going, yeah, you know what? We're dealing and, and I, I have a great future and this is great. And I can't imagine anybody else but you. Well, what I want is to find the next one and give them the same give them a little bit of what I've got. And then if I can make their path through it easier than mine, yeah. and then they go on to then filter the information through, you know, we, we had no information available to us. We really were feeling around in the dark when all this kicked off. 
and information then, about what about the process about or, the process about amputation about behavior mm-hmm. adaption uh, anything there was just nothing available in the uk and you know if anything what i want to do moving forward is to make more information readily available practical information you know we get all sorts of emails from different people that are going through similar circumstances yeah. husbands wives are going through amputation and they're they're petrified that they can't travel or you can travel you know traveling by air now is wonderful when you're disabled you know you're so well looked after but right at the beginning we were questioning the same thing you know right. am i ever going to go on holiday with my little boy um so it's just it's just being there you know and, and we're very lucky that if something is going on somewhere in the country it can always find a way back to where we are and in this day and age with the internet and with the technology you're only you're a phone call away aren't you you know yeah absolutely we can help directly there and then so you're working you're working with with um the the robotics companies yeah so i, I do a lot of work with um university students who are researching into prosthesis bionics biomechatronics and so i offer myself up as a guinea pig so they can ask me anything they want and then i will trial anything they make and give my honest feedback honest appraisal what they're doing Um, well it's it's a very i'm very lucky to have the opportunity i never went to university and i regret not going having been working with these guys the last two years never too late alex Exactly that. You're right. It's never too late. And I, I think I will, I will go to university. Um, but I just, I find it fascinating. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of guys now, they're, they're not about, you know, let's, let's go to university, let's go out and get a really great job and lots of money. There's far more now saying I can make a difference to that, that certain group. I want to go and do that. I'm not in, not in it for the money. I want to help. So what, did you ever think about going into engineering or whatever it is that you would need to create robotics because you're you've got the inside you got the inside pass there a scoop on it um, no i wouldn't i think i would if anything i'd want to help nurture the the students coming out of university that are wanting to go and set the companies up to then start making the prosthesis so i'd like to give them practical help in terms of setting up a business we have some very good contacts through hospitality and um you know venture capitalists we we have access to people like that whereas a lot of students don't. So I, I think we're long-term, I can see myself being the link to getting these companies off the ground and hopefully starting them to then see some cheaper prosthesis entering the market. And what if you were to help the disabled start companies? I'd love to do that as well. Because I think for me, going back to work, I didn't seek any special advice. I just got my head down and, and did it. But I had great support at home. And I think in this day and age, disability is in a far better place than it was 10 years ago, but it's still nowhere near where it should be. So I think long term, I would like to start to help the disabled get into work, um, to set up their own companies, to find a niche perhaps that they're, they're not quite looking at. The one thing in my life is that we do so much and it is so varied. You know, I'm not doing the same same job day to day. I'm not doing the public speaking all the time and I'm not at university all the time. Um, so we have a very varied life, yeah. um, which can only enrich my source of knowledge really. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still young. I'm still 38. I still feel like I'm 21. Um, so yeah, I've got a, I've got a lot of life in me, I think, and hopefully I can make a difference. To me, that's what it's all about. If I can make a difference, a good friend of mine said that, you know, the most powerful thing anyone can do is make a difference. And he was he was saying that every time he gets delayed on a flight, he thinks of me, and then he's not angry. The anger is dissipated because he thinks, why am I moaning about being delayed on a flight when? Mm. I could be at home with quadruple amputation. So I'm very fortunate that, you know, through fate, we possess that. That's incredible. 
Yeah. I mean, social impact is hugely, you know, uh, responsible for everything that I, that I do and, and think about. And I love to see more companies, you know, get involved with corporate responsibility programs and, you know, that could help people like yourself and, and just, you know, think about, okay, beyond, beyond your own capacity to make money or greed or whatever it is that people think about, um, how, how can I make life better for somebody else? Even with, even if I'm just, you know, gardening or whatever they there there's opportunities everywhere to make and give um, yeah absolutely. All, everywhere everywhere absolutely. yeah so your future looks good absolutely your future looks good we need three million dollars we do so we somebody do. pony up it's not insurmountable but it would be nice that if in 10 years time we've achieved that goal yeah then we can bench that and say right we don't have to worry about that now now we can go out and we can make a real difference there is always i think the only thing that is a bit of a bind for me is that it, we have that nagging figure above us all the time um, because i don't want to be 60 and find that i, I can't have the right arms anymore or I can't afford the knee joints I need and that's I, if anything, how often do you have to change them arms would break every two to three years wow. and knees would go anywhere between four and six years so let me ask a, you uh, sorry I, I just want to talk about public perception for a moment because I think that's really important you know I was in a wheelchair for maybe six months and I know just from my limited experience what how difficult it can be. You're in a store, people they don't look at you, they don't want to look at you, uh, they yeah. don't even serve you. They look, oh, excuse me, you know, can I help you? Or you go into a washroom and and you know the disabled stall is at the very end, so you have to maneuver all the way through with your stupid wheelchair. Take the feet off because they're not going to fit in there. And yeah. and you know why couldn't they put it at the front? Why couldn't it be the first one? So all of these, you know. Uh, just perceptions from, from, you know, sitting in a chair, but just from the public too, like they need to get used to it. They need to get, you know, be, it's okay to look at you. It's okay to look at people in chairs. They want to, they want to be noticed. They want to be, you know, accepted, whatever. I mean, you're just in a different sitting differently, like no big deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were very, very conscious that as soon as I got home, I was going to go out and I was going to be seen. And I was also pretty confident that nobody had probably ever seen anything quite like me before. So I was fully expecting strange looks. And what I didn't really bargain for was the amount of people that came up to me and said, well done you, you know, it's great to see you out and about. And it was more positivity than there was negativity. Oh, that's awesome. And I think, you know, I think if people knew that and they were going to come out. I'm sure there's many, many people that have gone through horrific circumstances in wheelchairs with people in the sun. And there is a very small amount of the population that do have a complete disregard for it. Um, but more often than not in the UK, I, they think it's great, you know, and they're more, they're, they're probably more confident nowadays to come up to talk to you to say, how you doing? What happened? Their kids often ask questions and, you know, sometimes you try and will the kids to come up first, then the parents will follow. Um, but I think. Do you go to I, schools? Do you go to schools and talk to children? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do anything. We've done primary school to secondary school, colleges, universities. Um, yeah, all the way up to an old people's home. So we do the whole board all the way through. I think it's and important it's, to talk to children and let children see a diversity you know absolutely the the work that we do in schools is probably the most rewarding because the kids are looking at you thinking well, well, I, don't know, I don't know where to look what do i say and at the end of it after the talk they've got millions of questions and all they want to know about is you know how can we help what can we do yeah you know and they are they're, it's been said a million times but they are the future if you can educate those guys yeah that's going to make a difference to a generation after you in a positive way, then that's, you know, money can't buy that. Is Sam in school yet? He is. Yeah. He's in junior school. Um, 
primary school, sorry, he loves it. Absolutely loves it. And Has anybody been, said anything to him about you ever? Did he has to defend you ever? Or? No, no, fine. they haven't actually. And I think that's the one thing we're waiting for because there is going to come a point where somebody does say a negative comment about me in some, some form or other. And it'll be interesting to see his reaction to it. Um, we were very, very um, quick on the uptake. But as soon as I came out of the hospital, I went straight into Subway School so the kids could see me. And they understood that Sam's dad, Sam's dad's gone through X, Y, and Z. So they were, they were aware of the situation. Um, but the more that I did in terms of speaking, the more um, press coverage, media that we did, the sooner the word spread and all of a sudden everyone knows about it and then it isn't a problem. Uh, right. Um, everywhere I go, I get stopped. So I get asked, how are you doing? It's, it's lovely. And Sam's more often than not with me. And he sees that positive reaction. So it's quite nice that in terms of disability, he has no clue about what it really means. Mm. You know, well, Dad can still work. Dad can do that. Why, why help him? You know, and I, I want him to be like that. Yeah. Brilliant, him, really. Uh, it isn't a hurdle. It's, you know, you can get through it. Well, you, I have to say, you, everybody watching has to say, like, what an incredible, you know, person you are. And just how you're wired and what, how you think and how positive you are and really courageous. And, and the things that you thought about, like you just said, you know, you went to the school, you, told, you, know, you went out there and you showed people so that they didn't have to talk. They could look, they could ask questions. They didn't have to wonder or worry. And, you know, because I'm sure a lot of people said, they go, what if it happens to me? Oh, my God. What, you know? Absolutely. And, and I, I, I can understand that a lot of the parents are thinking, oh, my goodness, please don't tell my, my son and my daughter that, that they got a cold. They're going to turn into this. Um, but the, the response from kids is just great. And, uh, you know, in, where we live in the UK, it's a beautiful area. And the people are equally as beautiful. You know, we've been, we've been very lucky in the support we had um, all around has been phenomenal. So you, um, I know before you got on here that you were being followed around by a film crew. So what's happening? Can you so talk about it? Uh, yes, yeah, it's going out on Discovery Channel, I think. Um, I'm not too sure when. And it's just, uh, the, the people are just fascinated with day-to-day living arrangements, the work, the microchipping plants or whatever, whatever I'm up to. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, yeah, Luce and I, we, it's just the norm to us really. And what we do and you know Sam, Sam comes back from school but people want to see it and uh, yeah. you know, want to believe it I think well it's a feel good story for sure and it's it's a happy ending story really absolutely well it's you know we were we're only a part of the way through the story, but it's certainly a happy one. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you've got a whole lot of years left. So I just love that, you know, where your future is going to go. And I hope that the $3 million gets in your pocket so that you don't ever have to worry about limbs or wheelchairs or anything for the rest of your life. And uh, one more thing we have, we didn't talk about, and that was the bull logo. Cause I, I think it's pretty special. You want to tell us where, where that came from? Yeah. The bull logo. So when Lisa and I, we bought the Greyhound, which is the restaurant that we own. Um, we were renovating the, uh, the bar and the restaurant and I said to Lisa so I've got, I had a quite a clear idea that I wanted the restaurant to be feminine and the bar to be masculine and a good friend of ours Marlon um, is an artist over in Australia and he created uh, this bull it's a beautiful um, spray painted canvas and I said to Lisa that that's what I want I want that in the, in the bar but unfortunately it was, it was very expensive and it was way out of our budget um, he's a Gordon Ramsay tends to take his artwork everywhere and all his restaurant openings. So oh. he's very well supported. Um, so I, I said, well, maybe we can buy a print. And anyway, couldn't afford that either. So <laughs> not forgotten about it. And, you know, I, I've, all, I've always had it in my mind that one day we'd have the money to buy it. And when I fell ill in that November 2013, in January, he flew in from Australia. And he came to see me in hospital. And Lucy didn't tell me that he was coming over. And as he came through the hospital door into my room, I could see that he had a, a, a big tube. I said, what are you going there? And uh, I could see he was starting to cry. And Lucy was 
perhaps he's starting to cry. Lucy never cries. And um, he unrolled it and he said, you know, how could I sell it to anyone else when, you know, you coveted it for so long, you know, and, and this is what you wanted it so much and for what you're going through. And, you know, if I can't give you this for nothing, then what can I do? And that, then I started to cry. Yeah. And then, and then it became the logo for our trust. Love it. Um, it's perfect logo for you too. Strong. It, it is. Yeah. I mean, everything about it, weirdly, we, we didn't, we didn't think about the symbolism at that point, but the more we look at it and it's hung in our dining room now that every time we see it, it reminds us of where we are. Alex, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Just great to see you. And I hope everybody, you know, as you watch this, you, you really think deeply about life and where you are and, you know, what can happen, but not, not just what can happen, but really how you can you know, take those lemons and, and turn them into lemonade, I guess, really. Like, that's, it's really about, you know, how you think, isn't it? Absolutely. It is. It's a state of mind. We will see you next week on Mission Unstoppable.